grateful to be back here in the house of the Lord as we've been continuing to talk about the book of Nehemiah and what it means for us in terms of Christ, in terms of culture, in terms of community. And so where we have left off, you know, obviously we're talking about rebuilding this broken place that Nehemiah is seeking to rebuild and how we've connected that to the work the Lord has called us to do even here in Tarrant and the message of the gospel overall universal. And so today what we're going to look at is the importance of having good leadership in those spaces and places. Now, if you look out into the world, you read some of the most popular books, some of the best-selling books, one of the most trending topics in terms of what people want to read about, for those who do read, is concerning leadership. How can I be a good leader? Am I a leader? What are the traits of a good leader? And you see a lot of conventional wisdom. It's get up early, be driven, don't quit, be consistent, be disciplined, which I think all of those things are wonderful traits. But is that the depth of leadership that God actually expects and requires of us? You know, many of us want to know, you know, how can I be a good leader? But let me give you a bit of a dose of reality, and I don't want it to be disappointing, but maybe sobering is the right road, right word. All of us in this room, every single one of us that identifies as a Christian, every single one of us that identifies as a person who's created in the image of God, all of us have the ability to lead. Every single one of us can lead. But not all of us have been called to be leaders. What does that mean? That means you may not be the CEO, you may not be El Jefe, you may not be the boss on your job, you may not be the appointed leader, but it doesn't mean that you can't still lead. You don't have to have the title in order to have the attributes. And one of the things that you learn very quickly about leadership is if you're not the leader, the best way you lead is by following well. It is by following sincerely and with integrity. And a lot of times there's this discouragement for people because if they don't feel like they're the appointed leader, they don't demonstrate or display any of the traits to lead. They abdicate any authority, any chance they have to actually lead well. And I think that is what messes us up a lot of times is we have been called as Christians and plugged into the world. And we think so many times, well, I'm not the boss, so why would I speak up? Why would I acknowledge that is right or wrong? But even if you aren't the leader, the charge that God has placed on you as a Christian is greater than even your boss. And I think this is where our Christianity sometimes conflicts with what we may want to do or what we may actually feel. You've been called to lead even when you don't have a title. And the way that Christians specifically best lead, it's the title of the sermon, it is by leading by example. That is how Christians best lead. And there was nothing, when you read in the Bible, that frustrated Jesus more than when leaders had an expectation, specifically religious leaders, 
had an expectation of people that they themselves had no interest in meeting. You know what we call those kind of people? Hypocrites. Bad leaders project expectations on everybody else, but they don't believe that any of those expectations apply to them. Why do pastors fall? Because all of the morality they preach about is for the people in the pews, not the person in the pulpit. But what you learn about really good leaders, they lead not by being below the standard, but by trying their best to be above it. And if you don't do that, then you are a hypocrite. And it can be hard to lead others where you aren't willing to go. So our first point in today's sermon, leading by example, our first point is leadership is a mirror. Leadership is a mirror. If you want to know how you lead, if you want to know whether or not you lead well, whether you lead on your job, whether you lead at your house, whether you're leading in any other area of your life, if you want to know how well you lead, sometimes you have to look at how the people you lead behave. Christy always gets me with this at home. I can't stand it, you know. She's my biggest method of sanctification. Because y'all know, y'all know me well enough to know, with all these kids, that I am a bit of a fusser. I, a little bit, I tend to fuss, bonafide fusser. And so one of the things that I often fuss at my children about is them fussing at each other. I can't stand it. They hit each other. The one thing against me is when Benjamin tells Sarah Brooke, go to your room. And I'm like, where is he getting that from? And I say, go to your room. And I realize, uh-oh, he is mirroring what he is seeing. And the issue is, it's not that I can't still be frustrated with his behavior, but it's also that I have to consider that my display of behavior is the reason he's demonstrating that same behavior. And so I might be agitated, I might be upset, I might be frustrated with the way that he's behaving, but if he learned it from me, then that means something about what I'm doing as his father, as the leader of my household, as the husband, I have to adjust. And it is, it is a sinking feeling for you to realize that the thing that angers you the most about somebody is the thing that you created. That's what happens when many of us attempt to lead. And I notice, man, they pick up every little mannerism, every cadence, my face, the way that I point. But they all learned it from my example. And I'll give you this. You want a, a note, something to understand. I want you to think about this. Good leaders will lead knowing that they are always being watched. That's it. Good leaders lead knowing that they're always being watched. And I think that's one of those things that Nehemiah clearly is showing us in this very text. Look at what he says. He says, 
12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Y'all, this is one of the most difficult things about leading. As a leader, you always have to consider the optics. How does it look if I do this thing? How does it appear to people who may not know the context? Nehemiah says that the reason that he is not taking the food allowance is not because he intended on doing anything wrong with it, but because people in the past, governors who had been in the position that he was currently in, had taken advantage of the food allowance. And he knows that that is a sore spot for the people that he has been called to lead. So out of sensitivity for those people, even though he did not intend on doing evil with the food allowance, because of the optics, he doesn't take it. Y'all, that is the, the challenge of leadership is that there are going to be times when you have to make a decision not just for what you feel, but how it might appear to people God has called you to serve. This is where any job I have ever worked, any place I have ever been, this is where bad leaders fail. Because they don't consider the optics. And so Nehemiah makes this decision, a decision that every one of us has to make as a Christian, not as a pastor, not as a musician, not as a singer, but as a Christian. You are being watched. You say you're a Christian, then why are you and your wife fighting like me and my wife? I'm not a Christian. You say you're a Christian. Why are you in and out of everybody else's house like me? We have to consider what we are told in Scripture. We are living epistles. People want to hear what you say, but most importantly, they want to see what you say. And a mistake that many people make is that what you say don't line up with what people see. And far too often, we think people are either blind or dumb, and they don't see what they see, and they do. The call as a leader, like we see with Nehemiah, is to be so sensitive to God and people that even in my attempt to do right, I don't want to be mistaken for wrong. Nehemiah knows that the people in the past have taken advantage of the food allowance, so he chooses not to take it because he doesn't want anybody to say he took advantage of the system. This reminds me when Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he had told them that he chose not to, as he had come to them to preach the gospel, he said, I chose not to burden you financially so that no one would think that I was only coming to preach for the money. He says, I relied on churches that weren't even in Corinth so that you wouldn't have a bad opinion of me. Now, it was fully in his right. The man had to survive. But you know what Paul did? 
Instead of just taking the money for the people, he got a job. And he became a tent maker. Because he didn't want bad optics. More importantly, he knew that in those places, those false gods and false religions, those people had spent exuberant amounts of money to appease those gods and those leaders. And so in an effort to show I'm not like them, the God I serve is different, he says, I'll take nothing from you. He's not stupid. He's wise enough to consider the optics. He has a context for what people had done in the past, and he doesn't want to be lumped in with what those other people have done. When you leave, you can't just have the context of what is happening now. You've got to consider what has happened in the past. How does this sound or look or feel to the people God has called me to serve? I remember I had a very difficult conversation. There was this guy that I know who was leading a ministry. And God, he believed, had called him to come lead ministry in black inner city, which I hate that term because they were the suburbs. But he felt like the Lord had called him to serve those people in those communities. And he's not a bad guy. He grew up in a similar community. He's, he's a white guy, but he's not a bad guy. He's a friend of mine. But I saw an example where he didn't lead well. Because when he would go pick up those kids in those communities, he was driving an Escalade. I'm not saying there's a problem with him driving an Escalade. I'm not saying there's a problem with him having that car. But he was from that neighborhood. I think we all know in the hood who drive Escalades. <laughs> Drug dealers and preachers. And I didn't have a problem with him having that car. What I just would have liked was for him to consider the people God had called him to serve. You're pulling up in an Escalade and these people can't even pay their rent. How do you think that looks? More specifically, you're pulling up in an Escalade to serve in ministry, and that ministry is based off of donor giving. Now, I know him well enough to know he probably was not taking that money from those donors. He had investments. He had had a life and a career before. But what do you think people thought? We're giving all this money, and you're driving an Escalade. It looks like you're using that money for this. Now, he may have been above board, he may have been on the up and up, but the optics weren't good. Y'all, I know we don't want to hear it, but there is a level of humility and sensitivity required of us as Christians that means if I get something I really enjoy or like or something that is very nice, I have to be very diligent and considerate and sensitive that it may not come across a certain type of way to people God has called me to serve. And if you think that that is above you to do that, then you're wrong. You have been called as a Christian to be the example every place that you go, to be the light every place that you go. And God forbid that in your attempt to be the light, you end up leading people further into the darkness. 
You have to lead having the context of the people that God has called you to lead and have the sensitivity of the things that had happened to those people before. And that is how you pinpoint flaws in a person's thinking and their ministry if they feel like they have to detach themselves from the people God has called them to serve. You are not just a leader, but you are a servant. You can't lead where you will not serve. It's a service. As far as I'm concerned, the biggest thing a pastor has to do in leading is serving you well by faithfully preaching the gospel. That's it. You can have the celebrities, you can have the music, you can have the fame, you can have the acclaim. But if what I say doesn't touch your soul, it doesn't matter if these pews were filled up, that doesn't make me a good leader. And you know, the other thing that you tend to notice with bad leaders, specifically in the Christian faith, even if you call them out, even if you confront them, they always have a way to justify their offenses. Well, I know it was bad when they did it, but I'm the exception. It doesn't mean that, or those people aren't looking at me like that. I don't care what you say. If you have been called to serve underprivileged people, don't pull up in exuberantly expensive cars. And I know there are people who may disagree, but just hear me out. Even if a person has worked hard and acquired what they have acquired, and done what they've done above board, you've got to consider the optics. And even if it is legitimate, you've now opened the door to accusation. It's a hard thing to be a Christian. It's a hard thing to lead well. Christians must also lead assuming that eyes are on them. I don't know if you ever heard of Truman Syndrome, but it's this idea that Truman Capote believed that his life was a TV show and people were always watching him. I'm not saying go that far, that's a little manic, but there are two points of accountability that all of us have as Christians. One, yeah, we're accountable to people around us horizontally, but what you learn is I can do things perfectly, which I know I can't, but even if I did things perfectly, people would still say I was wrong. Jesus had no sin. He was reclining with sinners, and he said, look, if I do this, you say I'm a drunkard. If I'm John the Baptist in the wilderness praying, you'll say I'm weird. I can never please you, but I'll do my best. That's one level of accountability. But as a Christian, my main level of accountability is, by the way, the fact that eyes are always watching. And it may not be the eyes of the people, but it is the eyes of God. And no matter what I do, I can never escape that God not just sees what I do, but he knows who I am. And the way that we lead well as believers is by being above reproach. What does that mean? Whatever the line of sin is, you need to be above it. You've got to be above the ability for people to make accusations against you. 
So if this is the line of accusation, you don't need to be on that line as a Christian. If this is the line of accusation, you need to be so far above it that people can't even name that you were in the room or in the car or at the hotel or out at lunch. Did you know so-and-so was with so-and-so? No, I didn't. How you know? I saw it. Could have been completely innocent. But when you are below the line of accusation, you open the door for those accusations. No, we hate it. In Romans, Paul says that as Christians, we should never lead anyone to stumble. And in his case, he's referring to what you eat specifically. But broadly, he is saying in your effort to do what is right, don't mislead people to sin. That is where we get that text that is a little quoted out of context. Romans 14, 16. So do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. You have control over that. If I am attempting to do good things and to do well and be pleasing to God, I've got control over whether or not it looks as good as I intend it to look. And there are, quite frankly, sometimes your good intentions look real immoral. You've been called a lead, right? That means that if it is a problem for your brother, if you know, if they saw what you were doing, that they would stumble, then you have an obligation not to do it in a way that would lead them to sin. Perfect example. I don't have a problem with drinking alcohol, I am not a big alcohol drinker because if I'm thirsty, I'm not going to drink something that's burning my throat. But I don't see no problem with it. But if I have a brother or a sister or a friend in the Lord or someone striving and they are recovering from alcoholism, I cannot use my freedom as a means to lead them into sin. By the way, doing that is sin itself. Don't let your freedom imprison your brother or your sister. You say, well, but I get to choose. I should be able to do. But you're submitting to a higher authority. That authority is God. And, you know, I was thinking a lot about why has the church struggled so much recently? And I think about the last few years. I think about some of the things we went through with COVID and the pandemic and all this stuff. And I remember seeing Christians take stances as if they were biblical about a mask. They took a stance about a mask as if it were the gospel. Said, I'm not wearing it because it's inhibiting my freedoms. And there were people who did not know the Lord who were watching us. And you know what they said? So you don't care about other people getting sick? 
I'm not a scientist. Whatever you believe regarding mass is what you believe. But if, if I'm around people who believe that that protects them and my goal is to lead and serve them well, then I got to be sensitive. <laughs> and it doesn't surprise me now as Christians are trying to get all this legislation passed and they want to address this and address this and they're asking the world to bend in their favor, we ain't never done that. We have built stances on sinking sand as if it were the gospel, refusing to relent, and you think the world is going to care one iota that you want to redefine what the meaning of life is? They're following your example. You're hardened, Christian. So is the world. And I want to ask you a question. It is a real question. It's not one of them setups. Sometimes I have setups. This is a legitimate question. I want you to ponder this. If leadership is a mirror, then is the failure of Christian leadership being reflected in the world or is the leadership of the world being reflected in the church? Because at this point, I don't know which is which. I don't know if we're trying to be celebrity pastors because we celebrities, see celebrities out there, or if everybody's trying to be celebrities and influence because all of us are celebrity pastors. Can't figure it out. Are they immoral because we're immoral? Do those leaders fall because our leaders fall? Do they not draw lines of morality because in the secret and back offices when people are not here? We don't draw those lines either. Y'all, you remember what I said about Benjamin? That I realized the thing that I was upset about, I created. It is my fear that the things that we are upset about in the world, that we see the world doing, you know where they learned it from? They learned it from us. They learned it from us. The weakness of Christian leadership over the last few years is not just that we have been trampled over, but it is that we have stood our ground far too often on things that we shouldn't stand our ground on. You want to know why the world doesn't care about Jesus, y'all? I'm, I'm candid. And I took my five minutes today, but I'm just being candid. You want to know why the world doesn't care about Jesus? Because churches don't care about Jesus. They don't care nothing about Jesus because we don't care nothing about Jesus. You can go to many churches, hear a whole sermon, and Jesus is alluded to but not mentioned. And we think we're going to go out there and tell people that a Middle East for your sins hung on a cross and rose from the dead, and most of the people who are preaching it don't even believe it. And if they do, they don't live like they do. We are the problem with the way that people, people view God, they view Jesus, they view the church. We created the monster. We're trying to destroy it. And I've watched over the last 40-ish years, maybe longer, 
We have watched popular preachers all rise and make platforms and names for themselves, cultivating their need for celebrity. And modern day pastors, even the ones that we say are sound, look back at where those other leaders failed and they did the exact same thing. We are the problem. And a culture that doesn't care about Jesus happens because churches don't care about Jesus. I apologize for point one. Point number two, let God lead you. (laughs) It's not as long as the first one. Let God lead you. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Not only did Nehemiah avoid making mistakes that people in the past had made, but he did this by remembering where they had fallen short. But he also knows that having a good memory of other people's shortcomings is not a good enough deterrent to do right. When you don't want to sin, husband or wife, person that you are, if you don't want to sin against your husband or your wife, for example, I'm going to tell you like this. Thinking of your kids, thinking of your wife, thinking of your husband is not enough of a deterrent. You can think that if you want. It is not enough of a deterrent. The only thing that deters sin in the life of the believer is not fearing what would my kids do if they found out what is God thinking as he sees this. You've got to fear God. Do you know that reverence and fear of God will keep you out of trouble when your desire to do wrong is raging? The only thing that prevents us all from being hypocrites is a fear of God. That is it. I remember growing up, look, I was a mischievous child. I want to paint a good picture. But I, I guess to describe my kind of trouble if, in the terms of, like, crime, it was misdemeanor. Like, I had a lot of misdemeanors, but it was just, like, misdemeanor trouble. I never really got in, like, big trouble. Now, that doesn't mean at my core I didn't want to get in big trouble, and it certainly doesn't mean that I didn't envy the people enjoying themselves. But, y'all, I can say this with all truth, because the woman holding her granddaughter is not the woman that raised me. I was scared of my mom. Not just that I believed that she was going to whoop me. I believed that my mother was omnipresent. She could hear and see stuff through walls. And I didn't understand how she could do it. And most of the trouble I didn't get into was because I didn't want to face her. But let me make this clear. I was never intimidated by my mother. And that's the difference. Fear leads to reverence because there's a relationship. 
where there is no relationship, all you have is intimidation. And there are many people who do not know God who are trying to check every moral box, not because they love God and are in relationship with him, because they are afraid that he will destroy them. And they're miserable. The basis of fear is rooted in love. Not because you think that you're going to be forsaken. I never thought for one second that my mother would forsake me. But I knew every time I got in trouble, it was like a fissure in our relationship. Y'all, we have to think the same way about God. Now, how do you gain that fear and reverence from God? You got to know him. You have to know him. You have to truly know and be in relationship with God. That's what it takes. And it is no wonder to me that many of us right now in this room feel more disconnected from God and by proxy disconnected from everything else around us. And it is all because we do not know him like we should. In the New Testament, we kept seeing these religious leaders getting it wrong, whether it was the Jews, whether it was the Pharisees, or even at times the disciples. And Jesus' biggest piece of advice was that you do not know my father. You think you know my father, but if you knew my father, you would do his will. And you want to know what? Nobody knew the Father better than Jesus, and nobody did the will better than Jesus. Jesus walking around as the perfect example of what relationship with the Father looks like when there is no sin. Y'all, Jesus was a perfect leader. And he was perfect because he always did the will of his father, even to the point in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's admitting, I don't want to do the will of my father. Y'all, real Christian leadership is not doing the will of the father when it's convenient. Real leadership as a Christian is doing the will of the Father, even if it costs something you thought you loved. I don't care if doing it the other way will make you more money. Is it the Father's will? I don't care if that is the practical way to do it. Is it the Father's will? I don't care if it seems like your ministry calling is this. Is it God's will? I want you to think about, which this is probably easy for all of us. I want you to think about the worst boss you ever had. I'm sure you don't have to think long. I got a tear to it. What made them so bad? Were they too passive? Were they too aggressive? Were they too inconsistent? Were they too lazy? Were they too much of a dictator? Now, think about whether or not they believed they were doing what they should be doing in life. 
I'll tell you, the worst managers I ever had, the worst bosses I ever had were not when I worked in the professional world. It wasn't when I worked at the bank. It wasn't even when I worked at the private school. The worst bosses I ever had were people who felt like they were in a place in life they didn't want to be. Fast food. I sold shoes for a while when I was in college. I worked for charter for a little while, three, three months. All of those people were so bad because they were so discontent with where they were. And so, when you're a Christian, what will make us lead well is that even in the face of displeasure, even when I'm not where I want to be, even when I wish I was further, even when I wish the church was packed, what makes good leaders is knowing that even in the face of displeasure, that I am in the will of God. So many Christian households are collapsing from poor leadership because of the uncertainty of God's will at the head. Churches are rendered powerless and useless because too many times the people in the pews don't have enough love for God to even show up on Sunday, let alone be, in the, be the hands and feet of the gospel the rest of the week. When you get, up in, you get up in the morning, who is leading you? And where, where are you going? And are you in the will of God? Last point, very quick, three-minute point. Good leaders persevere. Good leaders persevere. This is what Nehemiah finishes with. He says, I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet, for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. When we use words like persevere in order to describe what a real leader is, I think many of us perceive that as simply enduring and destroying our foes, fighting off our enemies, watching them crumble, we feel like that is what perseverance is. But if that's your definition of perseverance, you probably have a problem if you read the Bible. Because when you read the Bible, you realize that the end of the lives of some of the best leaders that have ever lived doesn't look like perseverance wouldn't seem that they per persevered. Whether you talk about Paul, who wrote 13 epistles in the New Testament, he is beheaded in prison. 
When you think about Peter who is crucified or James who is beheaded or John that is exiled. If these are the first leaders of the church and I just said good leaders persevere, then maybe perseverance isn't what we think it is. He talks about success here, sure. Things took a turn. They did well. They had more than what they needed. But Nehemiah also admits that even though there was an abundance, I didn't take an abundance. Even though we had more than we had ever had, I didn't change. So what is perseverance? I think it's what Nehemiah says. He talks about that success. He talks about great abundance. But it doesn't change who he is. Success does not change him. And I like what Tony Evans says. He says, for the people who think that money changes people, money doesn't change anybody. Money only reveals what you would do if you had it. When you get it. If you were a crook and a schemer and a scammer, you was just too broke and poor to be one before. That's it. So what is perseverance? As I close, to persevere as a leader is not to finish on the mountaintop, to finish rich, to see your enemies collapse and fall, to justify yourself or prove yourself. No. To persevere as a leader is just to finish well. And you'll be surprised. Look over the course of history. Good, solid, Christian, believing people will start off so well. But many of them do not finish the way that they start. In some ways, because of sanctification, it is to finish better than you started. I don't mean that you're financially better or physically better or that you have a better status, but it means that you have grown spiritually and so deeply connected with God that it is reflected in your consistency with him. So, y'all, we want to persevere. We want to stifle the mouths of the enemy. Well, the best way to do that is by living well. You want to do the best to display integrity and rightness then it is by showing that the rules don't apply less to you, they apply more. And this is why people have such a hangover about Jesus. Not only is he a perfect leader, but he never required anything out of us that he had not already done. You want to lead well? Lead by following his example. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word. God, um, some of these texts and scriptures, they make us go to a place, God, that maybe we don't think about, maybe we don't even consider. Maybe it's not even in our frame of thought, God, but it is really important for us to consider that every one of us in this room who is a Christian, whether we sing or play or preach, whatever the case is, you haven't just called us to sit in pews. 
but you've called us to lead. Now, whether we have a title, whether we're the leader on our job, the best thing that we can do is lead by following your example, being full of grace, full of mercy, full of humility, full of the evidence that we have been with Jesus. God, it is a challenge because that means that many of us are going to have to set aside things that we don't normally want to set aside. We're going to have to do things because of the optics, because of how it looks, God, but our ultimate authority is you. You know our motivations. You know our deeds. God, let us know you better every day. Let us deepen our connection with you. Let us lead our homes well. Let us go to our jobs and be the example. God, let people know you more because they've known us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.